0: Would you stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word? And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers. How edifying it is to speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another as we worship our good God and King. We thank you, God, for your word to us. Let it pierce our hearts and let us find encouragement and hope and rest in it today. Father, we pray for our church as we once again partner with the Bear Foundation this Christmas. We pray, God, that we would be generous in in our giving, in how we love these foster parents and these foster children We thank you, God, for providing this opportunity to us yet again to show the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way. I thank you, God, for a church that loves all people and gives special support to those in need. We pray, God, now that you would bless our time in your word, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? This morning's sermon is entitled, The Saving Work of the Lord. It's a subject that I have preached, I would imagine, countless times here from this pulpit. It is the most common subject in the New Testament, and is, if you're new with us, the way that we approach the scriptures here on Sunday mornings is we pick a book of the Bible and I preach it word for word, verse by verse, chapter, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. And over and over again in the writings of the scriptures, we're reminded of the saving work of the Lord. And you may wonder, why preach this same subject over and over again? Well, I'm reminded of, or would like to ask you a question to answer that one. Husbands, how many times have you told your wife, I love you? Wives, same question. How many times have you told your husband, I love you? Children, how many times have you told that to your parents? Parents, how many times have you said that to your children? Many of you know I was out last Sunday, and the reason that I was out was Christy and I were celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. I know. Now, some of you have pantry items that are older than that. But 20 years is a pretty long time to be married. So I I did the math. A conservative estimate is I've told my wife, I love you 15,000 times since we got married. I actually did the math. That's two times a day for the last 20 years. It's probably more than that, 15,000 times. Why in the world? I mean, I committed myself. I'm a man of my word. She's known me all this time to be a man of my word. Why would I constantly want to remind her that I love her? Because we are people who, we're people that are often prone to doubt. And I don't think my wife has ever actually doubted my love for her. And I've never doubted her love for me. But it does our hearts good to be reminded of these things. And I think this is why the authors of scriptures so often give testimony to the saving work of the Lord. To people who know it who have experienced it. And it's why we should come to the text when we, when we see texts like this week after week sometimes because we need to be reminded of just how good the saving work of God is. Just as we need to be reminded that our loved ones love us and that we need to remind them that we love them. God, through his word, points us time and again to his marvelous work of salvation. His work, not ours, his. What he accomplished through the death of his son on the cross so that we might find life. So maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, you've preached countless sermons on the saving work of the Lord, which means I've heard countless sermons on the saving work of the Lord. So let me just think of something else for the next few minutes. I would encourage you, don't do that. Open your hearts and your minds to be reminded again of just how good our God is and how he has saved us and the assurance that comes with that truth. First, thanksgiving for the saving work of the Lord. Paul begins this section in verse 13 by stating, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Paul is here writing about the holistic Picture of salvation. It's why he talks both of salvation and belief in the truth. This is both the moment of regeneration, that saving faith that we come to the understanding of our own need for Jesus and our desperate need. For forgiveness in the eyes of God and being made right by the power of the Holy Spirit where death becomes life and hard hearts become hearts of flesh but also sanctification in the Spirit, that ongoing process of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Later in this text, Paul's going to write about glorification, looking forward to our hope in Christ. So he has not just one aspect of of salvation in mind here, but he has the whole picture in mind when he says, we ought to always give thanks to God for this. Now, it's very common when we're reading uh, the New Testament epistles, most of which written by the Apostle Paul, to read a thanksgiving. But it's odd to read it at this point in the letter. As we've explored other letters, like we did previous to 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we saw a thanksgiving from Paul, just as we saw a thanksgiving in this letter at the very beginning. That was the common form of writing in the day, that there would be a blessing or a thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter, whether it was a religious letter or not. And Paul continues that form into these epistles to the church, then he has already written about another subject but returns to thanksgiving. So this is out of the ordinary somewhat. And because it's out of the ordinary, it should make us sit up and think for a moment, why? Why is Paul calling or why is Paul expressing this kind of thanksgiving and thereby calling us to join him by saying we ought always to give thanks to God for you because of what God has done through you, we're reminded in the text today that for those who are in Christ, we should live in a constant state of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us. It's, I didn't plan this to be the week of thanksgiving. We pick books and preach through them. But here we are, a week where in our culture, people will give thanks And they will give thanks for lots of things, stuff that we have, blessings that we've experienced most often, material, good health, safety, and security. But I wonder, will we as the people of God give thanks above and beyond everything else for that very fact that we are what Paul writes here, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, chosen by God to be a part of his church. Can I tell you that above everything else you have to be thankful for this week, you should be thankful for that. Above everything else, you have to be thankful for in your entire life, Christian. You should be thankful for this. We should join in with the apostle and say, "I am going to always give thanks because of what God has done in us." The saving work of the Lord should generate a hearts of thanksgiving that are always focused on Him. Now, notice what he says after he calls them beloved brothers by the Lord, he says, because God has chosen you, and the ESV is which I preach out of, the English Standard Version translates it, you as the first fruits to be saved. And some of you probably have Bibles that translate it, that something along the lines of, that God has chosen you from the beginning. The reason that there is a difference in translation is because there is a textual variant in the ancient manuscripts, now, what we have in our English Bibles are translations of ancient manuscripts. You know this to be true. And in most cases, something like 99.6% of the time, the ancient manuscripts always agree. But there are a few places known as textual variants where, where the translations from one part of the world or another part of the world, even in the oldest of, tra- oldest of manuscripts that we have, they disagree And this is one of those places. And actually, this is one of the places that's the most significant in its disagreement, that when you look at the ancient texts, about half of them say one thing and about half of them say the other. And probably the reason for that is, is it's just off by one letter. There's one letter within the Greek word here that's being translated that's different in some than it is in others. And when we experience that, we then go to the context of the book and we say, okay, which one of these would fit best in the context of the book? And Truth be told, both of these fit very well in the context of the book. And then we go to the broader teachings of scripture and we say, which one of these fits best in the broader context, the broader teachings of scripture. And the truth be told, both of these fit within the broader context of scripture. And so I can't rightly tell you if it is supposed to be first fruits to be saved or God's chosen you from the beginning. It could very well be either one of those because they both fit within the context very well. So let me just give, give an idea of both. That if Paul is saying what was translated here in the, in the ESV, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved, what he is giving thanks for is the saving work of God amongst the first generation of believers in Thessalonica, this fledgling church there that Paul was not able to spend very much time with and is now writing back to a second time, giving them more encouragement. And he's saying, I'm thankful for you, those who are the first fruits, those First, people to be saved in Thessalonica, knowing that God is going to continue his work. And that would certainly be within line and within context of what is being written here. Now, if he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm give, ought to always give thanks to you who God has chosen you from the beginning, this would be in, in line with what Paul has said in other places and other thanksgiving texts within. Scripture, for instance, in Ephesians 1, chapter 4, he's in the midst of a thanksgiving. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So, Paul is either talking about the pre creation choice to save his church or the first generation of new believers in Thessalonica, both of which fit the context of the book and the doctrines of scripture. But whether he's talking about one or the other of those, truthfully, it's still pointing us to the same idea. We, the people of God, should be thankful for our salvation. We should not take for granted that God alone did the work causing us to be born again, giving us new life so that we might be saved. Those of us who were raised in church, I was raised in church my whole life. Can I just be honest before you? It can be easy sometimes for us to take for granted the truth of the gospel message. It can be easy for us to, to, to just take it as old hat and something that we've always known. And, you know, we we've, we've believed it at some point, but, but it, it's, just, it's just this thing that's always existed. And maybe we take it for granted. And here's what we're called to. We're called to our knees in thanksgiving before God, that he is the one who has caused us to be born again, that he is the one who chose us, that he is the one who made us new that we didn't do the work of salvation, but he did by his mighty hand, bringing us into his family. Paul continues in verse 14, he writes to this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have Paul completing this idea of, sanct- uh, of salvation, that salvation is past tense, that, that moment where you come to faith in Jesus, it's present tense, it's sanctification by the Spirit, putting on Christ putting off sin, but it's also obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that one day we will be like him. Paul says that God has called you, called you to this. Then he says, through our gospel, you say, wait, isn't Paul being a little selfish here? Is it his gospel or is it the gospel of Jesus? Well, we take what Paul is saying here, he's saying it's the gospel of Jesus that we proclaimed To you. So, not only should we be thankful, church, for the saving work that God has brought about in our lives, we should also be thankful that someone told us about it. That some faithful saint of the Lord took the time to instruct you in the true saving knowledge of Jesus. Paul kind of paints this picture for us in Romans chapter 10. He writes this, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God author and perfecter of our faith, the one who accomplishes his work of salvation in the life of all who believe also uses faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sin so that they too might experience the glorious salvation of the Lord. Are you thankful for that today, my friend? Who was it that shared the gospel with you? For many of us in here who grew up within the church, it's likely some unnamed man or woman who faithfully taught in children's Sunday school some decades ago. A mom or a dad who instructed us from childhood in the good news of Christ. For others, it was a faithful friend who prayed for you, a family member who loved you during dark and deep times of your life that that never let you go, that never gave up on you, that continued to love you and continue to pursue you with the gospel. And one day, the Holy Spirit made your heart new. Whatever your testimony of faith is in here today, Christian, my, my question is the same. Are you grateful for the person who shared that with you? Are you thankful that someone continued generation after generation later from Paul to share the good news of Jesus so that you might believe. And then my question would be this, is anyone thankful for you for that? Is there anyone today who would look at you and say, I am so thankful that Ryan shared the faith of Jesus with me. I am so thankful that, that this person in, that, that, I pursued or that I taught or that you taught? Would anybody be thankful for us? Are we carrying on this same work that the apostle Paul and his mission team carried out? Are we doing the work of proclaiming the gospel to people so that more and more might believe? If not, why? I'm so grateful that we are a church that believes the gospel, desires to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, but I'm not foolish enough to believe that everyone in here is engaged in that task to the fullest extent that we could be. So not only should we be thankful that someone told us that thanksgiving should drive us to tell others about what God has done for them. Number two, standing firm in the saving work of the Lord. So Paul has called us to thanksgiving This reminder of being thankful for the saving work of God and gospel proclamation that brought us to that saving faith. And now he says, so then, brothers, so then, church of God, stand firm. You're thankful because you're in the church of God. So now as the church of God, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us either by spoken word or by our letter. So the instruction, the imperative that Paul gives to them is to stand firm, that we're not going to waver, that we're not going to wobble, that we're going to plant our feet firmly on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus and say, as Martin Luther did, here I stand, I can do no other. Because this is the only solid rock on which I can place my feet, the gospel of Jesus. I can't place it on my own works. I can't place it on the works of others. I can't place it on anything outside of Jesus alone. And so it is that gospel alone that we will stand firm on. But then he tells us how to do it. He doesn't just say stand firm and then move on to another subject. That would be cruel. What he does is say stand firm and let me tell you how. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught By us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Now, this is during the New Testament period where the New Testament scriptures are still developing. Paul's still, obviously, still writing this. So we have to ask what's happening here. What's the spoken word and what's the letter? The spoken word is the gospel that was proclaimed by Paul and his mission team while they were there. It likely also includes the spoken word of Timothy, who Paul, we know through the history here, had sent back to Thessalonica after he had left. So there was, there was spoken instruction, most of which would have been calling them to saving faith in Jesus and then giving them a firm foundation upon which to stand. Paul, an expert in the Old Testament, understanding that all of the scriptures point towards Jesus, would have likely instructed them in those things, and then taught them other things along the way. Then, we also know he wrote another letter to them, and even says here, by our letter. What's that letter? That's the first Thessalonians that he had already written to him that we explored in previous months. So this is the instruction. Stand firm in the saving work of the Lord by holding fast to the word of God because it is through the word of God that we know of the saving work of the Lord. It baffles me, absolutely baffles me that there are churches today who don't want to stand firm on the, work of the, on the word of the Lord But think they can still proclaim the saving work of the Lord. It is through the word of the Lord that we know of the saving work of the Lord. If we didn't have the word of God, we wouldn't have any knowledge of God. We wouldn't know what Jesus had done for us. We wouldn't know how we can follow him in saving faith and obedience in our lives, being brought along in faith by the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't know this if it wasn't for the instruction of the Lord. And this is why Paul says, stand firm and hold to what we've taught you. Hold to your training, hold to your teaching. And this isn't a new idea in scripture. This is a regular occurrence when, when one generation passes on the faith, passes the torch to the next, there is often an encouragement to stand firm in the teachings. One of the best examples of this is in the book of Joshua. Moses has led the people of God out of Egypt. He's led them during their time of wandering in the wilderness. And now it is time to take the promised land, to cross over the Jordan and take hold of that which God had promised generations before to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses, because of his disobedience in the wilderness, is not allowed to enter and dies. And the mantle of leadership of God's people is passed to a man named Joshua who had become a protege of Moses. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, the Lord speaks to him and says this, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do you notice the the theme here in this instruction from the Lord? It is the law that God had delivered to Moses. It is the word of God. He says, stand on this truth. Millennia ago, that was this instruction from one generation to the next as the torch was passed from the Lord to that next generation. And it is still the instruction of the Lord today. Stand firm on the word of the Lord because through it we know of the saving work of the Lord. Through it we know of the sanctifying work of the Lord and through it we are reminded of our hope in him. Church, stand firm. The word of the Lord because by it we know what God has done for us. Number three finding comfort and hope in the saving work of the Lord. Verses 16 and 17 read, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There are two soothing balms that are applied to our soul here as we consider the saving work of the Lord. We're thankful for it. We're called to stand firm in it. But then, the Apostle Paul says, we also find comfort and hope in our reminder of it. First, he talks of eternal comfort. Eternal comfort is an interesting word pair. We often think of comfort as something we need in the temporal, in the moment when we receive bad news, when we have a bad diagnosis, when we're not feeling well, when things aren't going our way, we need someone to put their arm around us and comfort us. And that is some kind of temporal comfort. And we all need that at some point in our life. We all need encouraging words. We all need loving words. We all need people to help us during temporal moments. That is not the kind of comfort that Paul says here, which is why that he says who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. By saying that the comfort that comes from the Lord is eternal, he's contrasting it with the temporal sufferings of this world. And there are and will be, as long as we are in this flesh, temporal sufferings in this world. If you're here today because you think Christianity is going to make everything go your way, I have very disappointing news for you. It's not. Actually, the Bible seems to promise the exact opposite of that, that as we follow Christ, we invite persecution and we invite suffering and we invite the refining fires of the Lord into our lives. But the, script, the, the authors of Scripture always view these things as temporary. Temporary trials, temporary suffering, temporary persecution, moments of affliction that are fleeting, Paul here says that the comfort that comes from the Lord is eternal, it never goes away. We will always have it. We can always turn to him. When we think of the saving work of the Lord, it is always something that we can rest on no matter what is happening in this world. We know this, God will comfort us and his comfort isn't but for a moment, it is for all eternity. The rest that we find in him is far greater than any suffering that we could experience for a moment in this world. Be comforted in Jesus today, my friend. But he also says that we find hope. We find good hope through grace. There is hope to be found in the gospel. Now, when we say the word hope, people often get confused because we talk about hope like a child talks about Christmas morning in hope that something will happen, that we'll get what we asked for. But that's not the kind of hope that scripture tells us about. The late R.C. Sproul, writing on the subject of hope, says hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. Hope is assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. This is far greater than any worldly idea of hope. God's idea of hope is set firm, not in this world. It is set firm in the throne of God itself. And this is why it's good hope. It's not a wishy-washy hope. It's not a, I'm gonna cross my fingers and hope for the best kind of hope. It is a hope that is set firm in God. And we can be established He writes this here in verse verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in, in the world. This is pointing back to that stand firm instruction. We can be established with a firm foundation in the hope of God because it is his hope provided through his eternal salvation that is set firm for us. Believer, there is great comfort and hope in the saving work of the Lord. So what? The saving work of the Lord gives us an unwavering assurance of our salvation. As we're reminded once again through the text of scripture that it is God and God alone who does the work of salvation that it is he who brings new life into dead souls. It is he who, who by the power of his Holy Spirit walks with us, sanctifying us. It is he who holds the hope of glory in Jesus Christ for all of eternity for those who believe. When we are reminded of his saving work by which we have come to believe in faith, it is a gift of God so that no man can boast. It leaves us with this firm assurance Unwavering assurance, standing fast and firm on a salvation uh, fast and firm uh, on a foundation of the salvation of the Lord. That we will not be moved. And that there is nothing in this world that can move us, because we were not placed there by our own power anyway. But by the power of the Lord, we were made new. And it is on that power on which we stand. So Paul takes up a similar subject in Philippians 3. I'm going to read this for us, beginning in verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that establishes him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The command to stand firm in the scriptures, again, is not based on our own works, but on the gospel of Jesus. We can stand firm because we have an unwavering assurance that God will complete the work in his church that he began before the foundation of the world. We have a present, right now, citizenship in heaven. You know this, right? That if you're in Christ, you won't one day be a citizen of heaven. You are right now a citizen of heaven. And we can hold fast to that truth. We're not waiting for it. We're not you know, rolling the dice and hoping to have it. We actually right now have it. It is firm and sure because it is birthed in the Lord and we can believe in it with our whole hearts knowing that he is the one who established it. This entire sermon I've preached to the followers of Jesus, calling us to thanksgiving, calling us to standing firm, calling us to comfort and hope, recognizing that there may be some who are not followers of Jesus. So what does this have to do with me? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) The entire thing has to do with you if you will but come to saving faith in Jesus Christ today. If you will believe as so many in this room have, turning away from sin and self and turning towards Christ and believing in him for your salvation, here's what God will do. He will create in you a new heart and he will create a foundation in the gospel upon which you can stand and have all of these truths applied to your life. You can't apply them there yourself. There is no good work in this world that you can do that can provide for you what Jesus Christ can provide. But if you'll come to him, faith and repentance, calling upon the name of the Lord, as we read from Romans 10, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord today, believing in the work of Christ in your place, dying a sinner's death, being raised to life by God, you too, my friend, can be set firm on the foundation of the gospel, the saving work of the Lord. Would you believe that today and be saved? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for how good you are to us in your saving work. There is not a man, woman, boy, or girl in this room, or a man, woman, boy, or girl that has ever walked this planet that deserves the saving work of the Lord. But yet, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin, at our worst of our worst, you sent Jesus to die in our place so that we may have life. And finding that life, we stand firm thankful, comforted with our hope set in the throne of God. I thank you that that is the testimony of so many believers in here today. And thank you, God, for reminding us of this truth. And we pray now that you would call more, that more would hear this good news of Jesus and they would believe it today unto salvation. Believe and be saved, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.